And welcome back to STEM Fatal, your women in science history podcast. Woohoo! Uh, we are here and we are feeling good. <laughs> are you sure, Emlyn? <laughs> I am. I, this week has been so long, but I feel good wild about ride. it. It's been a wild ride. Yeah. I'm very tired. I feel like I haven't slept in four years, but wow! Um, but tomorrow's a new day, and I'm in Georgia, and Georgia's very important in two two months. Oh my gosh! What an exciting time! What an exciting time <laughs> to be a Georgian! <laughs> yeah, who knew you'd be so central to uh, to everyone's happiness? I know. <laughs> I think Stacy knew. Stacy Abrams knew. Yeah, she sure did. Yeah. All right. Well, um, now that life is slightly less insane, that the election is over, and the post office is no longer slammed with mail-in ballots, uh-huh. and it's November, uh-huh. the month before December. Where is this? Where is this going? <laughs> Are you talking about a male woman? We have. Holiday stickers again. Uh, <laughs> I thought this was your transition into who you're talking about. No. I was like, is she a male science? Does she do male science? That would be um, interesting. Yeah. M-A-I-L or M-A-L-E? Um, I, you know, I don't know. Does, either stickers one. are great. Yes. Stickers... Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, we are doing holiday stickers again. Great for a little stocking stuffer to send a STEMnist you know. Yeah. Just a little like, hey, I remember you. Wish we could hang out in person, but I'm hiding in my house until there's a vaccine. <laughs> you know, just a little little something <laughs> in the mail. Um, it's designed by our lovely Caitlin Friesen, and so yeah. um, we'll have a link on our. We'll have a link in the description if you're interested. So just wanted to get that yeah. get that out there. Who, who are our stickers of? Oh, our stickers are of all all of the ladies. Um, <laughs> no, we got we got all all sorts of ladies. Who do we got? I can't remember one person's <laughs> name. It's been a really long oh, day. We have. I, well, speaking of. Um, today the episode's going to come out tomorrow, but on Monday today is Heidi Lamar's birthday, and oh, one of our stickers cool. is of Heidi Lamar or Hedy Lamar. Hedy, yeah. Hedy. Wait, her birthday's the day after my dad's birthday. Then what a because coincidence. His birthday was yesterday. Nice. <laughs> so happy birthday, Dad! He listens to every happy up. birthday, it's Dad. Kind of gonna be belated, but. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so the, some of the people that we have on the stickers are like Grace Hopper, we've got Eugenie Clark, we have Maria Sibylla Marion, um, Gertrude Ellian, Florence Nightingale, if you want to give someone good wishes for, for health and safety, Florence is a great one, Mm -hmm. uh, or if someone has issues with statistics, um, Vera Rubin? Do we have a Vera Rubin sticker? We have a Vera Rubin. We have an Annie Easley. Yes. A Hedy Lamar. That one. A Marie Tharp. And an Isabella Abbott. Yay. And I also like um, Sally Ride. Yes. And yes. Rosalind Franklin, I, I believe. Yeah. If you go to our website. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Okay. So merch corner <laughs> over. No, I just confused into- everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be so fun to edit. Now we've got... Um, okay, so I... I guess my question... I forgot to okay, do... Okay. I forgot to do one. What uh-huh. month is it? What? what? It's November. Yes, but it's also... You know... It, other... Um, is a it month? Native American Heritage Month? Yes! 
It is Native okay, American Heritage yeah. Month. I, I, it took me a sec to get at what you're really asking. <laughs> I was like, November, I, Emily. <laughs> I don't know how else to ask that. What, what uh, is celebrated say, like, in November? But that's also yeah, misleading. Yeah, what, uh, what goes... What's, uh, yeah, you're right. There's no other way to ask it. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you got How it anyway. would you define the month of November? I don't know. I would say fall. <laughs> yeah. You know, fall. There's uh, no other tur- way to ask. Turkey. Right. I, you know what? When you said turkey, I thought of the country. That's where my head is at. <laughs> God, we are all, our brains are demolished. A total mess. It's just, but, it's a okay, hot okay, mess. Okay, okay, okay. I got I got it. You got Native it. American Heritage Month. Yep. So today, in celebration of Native American Heritage Month, we are going to be talking about Dr. Susan LaFleche Picot, uh, a Native <gasps> wow. American doctor and reformer. So yes. w- while indigenous women have long practiced traditional healing, Susan, or Dr. Picot, was the first Native American woman to earn a medical degree and be considered a doctor in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So that I've been, uh, she's been, you know, I have like a list of people to get to and yep. she's on the list, you know, yep. there's just so many. I know. There's so, so many. Excited. I yeah. listened to an audio book. I'm going to have to, I'll add it to the, um, yeah. I'll link it, but yeah, I listened to an audio book like two years ago on oh. her for this podcast. <laughs> While I was do- finishing up my thesis and, like, cracking snails. Yeah. And then I don't think we had done many doctors uh, or, right, like, medical right. professionals at that point. And so I kind of wasn't sure whether or not we would we would consider this to be yeah. kind of within the realm of what we were talking about. And we've talked about a lot of doctors since then, so. Yeah, we. I've really expanded <laughs> Uh, I feel with I always choose people who are on the edge. Mm-hmm. No, I love it. <laughs> yeah, so doctors for sure are are now within our realm. Definitely. <laughs> All right. So you ready? Yes. Excellent. Okay. So Susan LaFleche was born on June 1865 on the Omaha Reservation in eastern Nebraska to Joseph LaFleche, also known as Iron Eye. And Mary Gale. And Joseph, her father, was Ponca and also French can and also had French Canadian ancestry. But he identified culturally as Omaha. Okay. And Chief Big Elk of the Omaha tribe during this time, um, before actually Susan was born, he had gone to Washington, DC in 1837. And he had seen the stark contrast of the bustling streets of the national capital and, you know, all the industry and stuff like that going on. And so when he came back to Omaha and Nebraska, he believed that the future of civil civilization was at odds with Omaha's traditional ways. And oh, so in order he, he believed that in order to survive, for the Omaha to survive. Um, they had to assimilate. That was kind of his opinion. And so he had yeah. chosen Joseph LaFleche as like the next chief of the Omaha people uh, because he was both French and Indian descent. Um, and he thought that he would be able to um, kind of help them assimilate to survive. Okay. Yeah. So. Interesting. Um, Joseph, Susan's father, tried to thread this bicultural needle, but this caused the Omaha to splinter between what they considered the chief's party, who were more loyal to traditional ways, uh, and what they called the young men's party, who lived on the north side of the reservation in log cabins rather than teepees, and were trying to assimilate. Okay. And so there was this kind of division in the Omaha tribe. And so this northern area of the young men's party, well, the, the chief's party, the more traditional um, individuals, called them, quote, the village of the make-believe white man. So they thought that they were kind of selling out um, and losing their Omaha culture by trying oh. to be more like the white man. Yeah. Which, yeah, I mean, 
I mean, both perspectives are fair. You know, there's no winning when you're the, a suppressed population. Yes. Right? Like, there's no right way. <laughs> like, you just, you know, you do mm-hmm. what's right for you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we'll get we'll get into it, but it's definitely... I feel like, I mean, okay, I feel like for a lot of the people that we cover, because we have a bit of a Western-centric view of what is a doctor or a scientist and what would have been considered by other people to be doctors or scientists, we only really talk about people who end up more or less, like, assimilating or adopting certain parts of white culture so it's very it's a skewed it's a skewed view but that is what it is um even like so i acknowledge that we often only talk about people who have been through educational systems Mm -hmm. which aren't uh, necessarily available Mm -hmm. to a lot of you know non-white groups and especially way back when and Yep. And yeah, and we define a, sometimes we define a scientist as someone who's been through that system. Yeah. But if that system's not available to you, well, yeah. Yeah. Sort of. There are alternate routes to being a scientist, something we've discovered on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and which I hope people will take away from it someday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So uh, essentially, this. You know, young men's party or quote, the village of the make believe man where they were living in log cabins. Um, this is kind of the environment that Susan, uh, lived in. So her, yeah, her father, Joseph, who was the chief at the time, he lived, uh, in a log cabin and lived and was trying to like assimilate a bit more. Um, and so okay. Susan, her family, she was the youngest of four girls, uh, Suzette, Rosalie, and Marguerite. Um, she also had an older half-brother, Francis LaFleche, who was later uh, renowned as an ethnologist, anthropologist, and ethnomusicologist who focused on Omaha oh and Osage cultures. So, wow. Pretty cool. Pretty cool, dude. Yeah. It's really interesting. Uh, and so as a child, Susan's parents taught her Omaha traditions – Um, But they didn't follow certain Omaha rituals, worrying that they might be detrimental in the long run in a white-dominated world. Oh, okay. So, for instance, um, they did not give Susan an Omaha name. They gave her, you know, a very white name, Susan. Um, And they prevented her from receiving the traditional forehead tattoo that would kind of mark her so she couldn't blend in. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, But Susan spoke Omaha with her parents almost exclusively and then spoke uh, English with her sisters and brothers so that she was fluent in both. Wow. So Susan's education began early uh, at a mission school run by both Presbyterians and Quakers, I think at different times, not at the same time, uh, on the Omaha reservation. And this school was made as part of President Grant's, quote, peace policy with native tribes in 1869 and i'm going to be very honest that like i my american history is terrible that's part of the the fun of doing this podcast is it like slowly teaches me things that my education uh that i didn't really receive but i do feel very ignorant in a lot of ways so i'm not going to be able to go and have like nuanced takes on a lot of this stuff but yeah uh, it's very complicated (laughs) So, like, we're not going to get really deep into a lot of these, like, policies and things like that and the, the repercussions and the implications and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I think that's wise, though I also think, it, to me, when I hear of a Quaker or Presbyterian educational system being forced upon yeah, no, really, yeah. reservations, yep. I, maybe not forced, I don't know, maybe they... There was an agreement or something uh, that, I don't know. I don't know enough about it. You're right. I don't have a take. <laughs> I've, I've tried to get I, some, I, like, other other historians' takes. So Yeah. It makes me cringe when I hear about it. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, without having all the details, I'll, I'll not get into it, I guess. Yeah. 
So I'm just going to back up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So Susan's education began early at a mission school, which was run by Presbyterians and then later on Quakers, which was on the Omaha Reservation. And this school was made as part of President Grant's, quote, peace policy in 1869. And his uh, Indian peace policy was designed to reform the Indian Bureau and remove corrupt agents um, and called for rigorous agricultural training on reservations and established schools and churches that would transform Indians into Christian citizens. It it doesn't, it doesn't sit with me well. No, Um, no, no. Yeah. 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 So according to Dr. Brooks Simpson, a history, history professor, words a history professor (laughs) at arizona state university quote some historians see it as generous humane thoughtful and that would be part of the story simpson said the other part would be that it called on natives to assimilate to retreat to reservations and become more like white americans you could argue that he was committing cultural genocide yeah especially if if this wasn't done in partnership and with reservations where they were like yes we would like these resources or something then yeah it's not okay (laughs) if you're forcing this on people yeah yeah okay so um so when susan was eight she stayed at the bedside of an i I told you when we texted this is not going to be a very uplifting episode (laughs) it's just i I mean no i'm i'm still uh i'm hopeful that susan is at least uh, a trailblazer. Oh, she's a trailblazer. <laughs> All right. So when Susan was eight, she stayed at the bedside of an elderly Omaha woman who was sick and in agonizing pain. Um, and she waited there for a white agency doc- doctor to arrive. Uh. They sent a message four different times to the doctor. And each time the doctor said he would be there shortly. Right. And the woman died before sunrise without the doctor having ever arrived. That's really sad. And so this event haunted Susan, uh, but also kind of made her resolve to want to change the system and be the doctor that would actually care about her, her community. And she said about this incident, quote, it was only an Indian and it did not matter. Ugh. So that's like... That's what she she left with that feeling of that's why the doctor yeah. never showed up because he just didn't care. I can't imagine I, that um, you must just feel so alone in a moment like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 No, it's awful. So after a few years at this Quaker Presbyterian, whatever it is, mission school, Susan went um, to school at the Elizabeth Institute in Elizabeth, New Jersey for two and a half years. Her family, as part of, like, Joseph, her father, as part of understanding that he, like, felt that they need to assimilate. Yeah. uh, He was a huge proponent of educating them on the East Coast at these these schools um, so that they would have opportunities to fit into white society. Yeah. So she went to the Elizabeth Institute in New Jersey for two and a half years and then returned to the reservation in 1882 and taught at that same mission school that she had she had wow. been at previously. That's good. Yeah. And then her and her sister Marguerite, her stepbrother Carrie, and 10 other Omaha children all went to Hampton Institute in Hampton, Virginia from um, 1884 to 1886. Okay. And... Hampton Institute was established as a historically black college uh, to educate former slaves after the American Civil War. Oh, wow. Like, established soon after. Yes. I believe so, yeah. Um, But it also became a college for Native American students. So a lot of Native American students went went there. Yeah, okay. And at the school... uh, the women learned housewifery skills, uh. and the men learned vocational skills for, for various jobs. Uh, that's you like know. such... Uh, I was going to say that's a waste of education, but it's like... Uh, it's just, that's just so frustrating, like, learning yeah. housewifery. 
And those are like good skills, but let's give me some other skills too. Like, yeah, I want to be able to balance my checkbook, make a great omelet and like do some killer science or cut open a body or something like teach me or like some, be a plumber. Something you know. empowering. Some other skills. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, not that being a housewife cannot be empowering, but you know, let's give people the choice to do other things if they want to. Right. Yeah. And maybe some of the boys want to be a houseman. Yes, let the boys be a houseman. Yes. Yes. Okay. But during this time, Susan met and fell for a young Sioux man named Thomas E. Kinnikabi, oh. um, who she called T.I. He was the OG <gasps> T.I. Whoa. You can have whatever you like. <laughs> That's all I know from T.I., <laughs> the, the rapper. <laughs> Um, however, she, she would not give him whatever he liked uh, because she broke off the relationship before graduating from Hampton (laughs) on May 20th, 1886. Um, at her graduation ceremony, she she was the class salutorian, which means she was like the second ranked in her graduating class. And she also received the Demarest Prize Mm. for... Um, getting the highest examination scores during her junior year. Oh. So she kicked some butt yeah. at that school. So in general, female graduates from Hampton University were encouraged to either become teachers or to return to their res- the reservation and become Christian wives. Ugh. Not just normal wives, but Christian wives. I'm just like... You have to go to school for that? Or <laughs> I don't know. I'm just a little, my mind's a little like, they must have learned more than, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean. I'm trying not to be judgmental of this housewifery degree. Mm-hmm. But it is. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you learn maybe like balancing books how to manage maybe some nursing how skills. to like do cooking some some knitting skills maybe some like minor like yeah um nursing medical right. skills you know yeah there uh you're you're a jack of all trades yeah i'm just like it's a, oh you're a jack of some trades you're jill of some the, trades the sexism of it all is blinding me yes. to how it could yes. empower someone but i you know yes if it's skills no it's i skills. agree being able to choose what you want to do is what is empowering. Being forced right. to do something, no matter what it is, if all women had to be doctors, that would also not be yeah. terribly exactly. empowering because it would be controlling what you think that they are able to do. Yes, yes you stated that perfectly. Oh, thank Thanks, you. Emily. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I also have no problem with you being a Christian wife, but I don't think you should force people to be a Christian wife. No, and... You know? Yeah, it's just... That I am being judgmental of, so I'll I'll shut my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so... uh, But, I mean, Susan LaFleche agreed with you, I think, in some ways. She didn't want to go back and be a teacher or become a Christian wife. She wanted to go to medical school. Oh, which was a bold move for a woman, even a white yeah. woman at this time, because male doctors, you know, wrote in their scholarly articles that stress, academic stress could make a woman infertile. <laughs> and that their small, uh, women's smaller brains prevented them from being capable of medical practice. So this was like oh, yeah, yeah. written commonly by do- male doctors mm. at the time. I mean, uh, additionally, <laughs> I'm just like, the, I, this can't. I told you this episode would be fun. It is fun. I'm having fun. Oh, okay, I'm good. having oh, fun. Good. I'm having fun. <laughs> Great. I just like, I'm like, where's the evidence to back any of this up? You dumbasses. <laughs> well, they took, uh, they opened up, you know, a six foot tall man and he had one size brain. <laughs> And they then took a five foot tall woman and she had a slightly smaller brain and they were like Hey, she must be stupid. There we go. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah. Anyway. But that is it is remarkable that she was interested in a medical degree and 
you know, what I, I assumed she got some kind of medical degree knowing where this ends slightly. But maybe like just last week, we talked about um, Francis Lee Glesner, who couldn't mm-hmm. even like Harvard didn't even admit women medical students until 1945. So, yeah, even though she had like paid for an entire yeah, wing. Right. And like started their own like department. Yeah. So this is ahead of it. She's ahead of her time. Yeah. She's she is ahead of her time. Yeah, and and I mean, you're right in that very few schools actually accepted women at this time to medical school. Right, yeah. So, you know, there was lots of barriers confronting her. Yeah. But Susan was accepted to the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania, oh. which was one of the few medical schools to educate women. Cool, okay. Pennsylvania saving us all once yes. again. Yes. Yes. um uh, but since medical school was expensive back then as well and so susan's family friend dr alice fletcher who herself was a harvard anthropologist and women's right activist and we probably will need to talk about her at some point yes yes (laughs) um alice fletcher used her network of contacts um, at women's reform organizations to secure funding for Susan's medical education. Oh, that's great. Women pulling up other women. I love to see yes, it. Yes, that's what needs to happen. Yes. <sighs> so essentially, Alice encouraged, in order to get this funding, Alice encouraged Susan to appeal to the Connecticut Indian Association, who sought to, quote, civilize the Indians no. by encouraging Victorian values of domesticity and teaching them cleanliness uh. and godliness. So she had to go and appeal to them. No. Uh, so Susan wrote to the Connecticut Indian Association and described her desire to enter the homes of her people as a physician and teach them hygiene. Oh yeah 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 There's there's a lot that, that could be said, is... but. I just, I can't, all I can do is sigh. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah. So this was right in line with the mission of the association. They loved it. And so they sponsored Susan's medical school expenses. Um, And because of this, she is considered the first person to receive aid for professional education in the United States. What? Yep. That's really... How do you even are there even records of that? That's crazy. I don't I this is what I read. Yeah. <laughs> Take it with a grain of salt. I only found it in one location. Okay. okay. Interesting. Um but the association also oh this was fun. You'll love this. No. They requested that she maintain remain single during medical school <sighs> and for several years after to focus on her practice. Well, you know, you can't think when you're looking at a dude's face. Women can't think. No, you know, ladies just go crazy for the boys. (laughs) They can't do, they can't operate when their head's in la-la land. (laughs) Uh, It's not safe. I I just am going to be groaning for the rest of this, I feel. (laughs) Ay, ay, ay. A lot of that. I mean, oh, Luna's. Also uh, very upset by the mistreatment of women. Every time a, a <laughs> unneutered male comes up near her, she, like, attacks them viciously. She is not uh, about it. That's funny. She's a, she's a true feminist dog, and I, I love, love it. I love her. <sighs> she's great. Okay. So, in medical school, I've, like, gone from very tired to... In this loopy kind of state, yeah. but I'm just going to write it out. Loopy, semi, like, enraged and excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it may be the ra- it might be the rage that's keeping me going. Uh, I mean, doesn't that keep us all you just going? You've got to use the rage for good, you know? Otherwise, things go bad. I, <laughs> I know. I try. I do what I can. Yeah. All right. So, in medical school, Susan changed her appearance. Uh, she began to dress like her white counterparts and wore her head... Uh, and wore her head. <laughs> she wore her head. 
This this is what it says in my notes. She began to dress like her white counterparts and wore her head on the top of her head <laughs> in a bun. She wore her own head on her head. On the top of her head. <laughs> I love a good typo sometimes. Uh, yeah, it was pretty good. Uh, you can figure out what yeah, I mean by that. Uh-huh. So she was valedictorian of her graduating class and graduated on March 14th, 1889. Yet again. So yet again, she's killing it. Uh-huh. Um, so now Dr. LaFleche um, applied for and was offered a position as government physician at the Omaha Agency Indian School. So that was, wow. I, I'm pretty sure that's the, the missionary school that she worked at before. Oh, okay. Um, and so additionally, she went on a speaking tour at the request of the Connecticut Indian Association to assure white people <gasps> that Indians could benefit from white civilization. So uh, awkward. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <sighs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's not her fault that the- <laughs> I that know. this is like the shit she has to do yeah. in order to just help her people yeah. and get a medical degree. Get any kind of beneficial treatment or yeah. Yeah. There's strings attached for everything yep. that she gets. Yep. So the Connecticut Indian Association appointed her as a medical missionary to Omaha and funded uh, purchasing medical instruments and books for her. Okay. Okay. So that's good. That is so that's good. good. Yeah. So despite being a doctor at this time, she still could not vote on account of being a woman and was not a citizen on account of being uh, Omaha because uh, citizenship was only granted in 1924 with the Indian Citizenship Act. And a lot of Indians still could not um, vote based on state-by-state rules wait just i'm so stupid like that i'm just sorry i'm just marveling at how ignorant i am like no i had to look it up too because i i that's after women were granted the right to vote yeah which really was tech like white women when it came down to it yeah Ugh. yep oh my gosh Okay. Yeah. No, I'm just sprinkling in little dates because I think the dates are like really important yeah. for figuring out how recently. I mean, there's there's still so much. Yeah. So much you could talk about with mistreatment. Yes. yes. Of um, native populations and things like that, but like just the fact that you know they couldn't vote until 1924. Yeah, that's at the earliest. Right. <sighs> Anyways, let's keep going. Let's just keep going. Okay. Dr. LaFleche returned to the Omaha Reservation in 1889 and worked as a physician at the Omaha Agency School. Though she wasn't obliged to care for the community, really she was supposed to be in charge of the school and all the school children in terms of their health. Um, But the school was actually closer for many people in the community than like the official reservation agency where I think they could, you know, maybe more like white doctors were. Yeah. Okay. Um, And so because of this, she began caring for members of her community in addition to the children in her school, just because one, they trusted her because she was from like, she was another Omaha. Yeah. Um, And two, she was a lot closer for a lot of them. Right. So Susan desperately wanted a hospital for her tribe, but that wouldn't come for many, many years just because she couldn't get the funds for it. Yeah. Um, but until then, she often had 20-hour work days <gasps> and was responsible for the health of 1,200 people. <gasps> what? How did she, she even survive that? Like four hours of She sleep made house night? calls on foot. Ugh. Walking miles in snow and wind to get to, to people's houses. Imagine just feeling that level of responsibility for so many people's lives and uh, health. I know. Uh, yep. Yeah. 
Eventually, she got a horse. <laughs> okay. And then a buggy. So eventually, okay. she kind of upgraded. Okay. Um, but she would still travel hours for a single patient wow. to get to to see all of her community. Yeah. And due to her education level um, and kind of her knowledge and experience, she also helped members of her community with writing letters, translating official documents. You know, she was really like a key person in the community to be able to communicate right. um, and interact with the larger kind of white community um, and all the bureaucracy that they had to deal with. Yeah. Uh, additionally, her first office, which was like where she, like her doctor's office, also functioned as a community meeting place. This was like a 12 foot by 16 foot room. Oh, that's not very big. No. Um, so for her work, she received a government salary of $500 a year and also what? received a $250 a year uh, like stipend for being a medical missionary from the Women's National Indian Association. So that's in, you know, money in, you know, 1890. Okay, but So still. in today's money, that adds up to about 21K a year. Oh, like a grad student. <laughs> Yes, so she's oh, like a poor grad student, though she has... Yeah, and also she's saving people's lives. She's saving <laughs> people's lives and she's working insane hours. Yeah. Yeah, no, like, she should... That's very low for the amount of yes. stuff she's doing and her qualifications. Yeah. So, um, during her first winter uh, after get, as a doctor, there were two epidemics of influenza uh, at the reservation. And so between October 1891 and spring 1892, she treated more than 600 patients, often in freezing or below freezing conditions, going from house to house. Ugh. And while she was well respected and people trusted her, she had to also convince members of her community that many infectious diseases, which were often new, like that hadn't been there for a while. They yeah. were introduced to the community by white settlers. Ugh. She had to convince them that these infectious diseases couldn't be treated by the traditional healers and the traditional methods that they had trusted for, you know, years and years and years beforehand. I hate myself <laughs> and all white people, like, for this. Yeah. I, I just... No, I mean, I, I often feel not great about... Um, yeah. It's not about white. our feelings. I'm just, uh, it's just. No, yeah, yeah. No, I know. I, yeah. It's, We've done some terrible things. Ugh. And we continue to do not great things. Yeah. So. Um, but other than, this is why I, I told, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a fun episode. So. <laughs> of, I'm having I fun. Up, oh, I am too. <laughs> but like in a soul crushing uh -huh. way. Um. So, you know, a lot of us know about how white settlers infected various tribes and native populations yeah. with smallpox. But I wanted to see, like, what diseases did we bring to them that they that weren't in Native America before we got here? So I'm just going to read you a list of some things that <sighs> native populations had never seen before and so were completely susceptible to right. and didn't um you know have any experience treating which is why traditional methods and all of that is really great and especially to stay in the community but i do think based on the fact that these two cultures were now interacting for the first time and all of these diseases were coming from were spilling over into native populations that it was very important and timely that they needed someone they needed actual like medical training yeah for these things yeah. that the like white settlers had experienced and then gained experience about that native populations hadn't had to because they'd never ex like they'd never been exposed to these diseases before yeah yeah that makes sense um, so some of these diseases were, you know, smallpox, bubonic plague, chickenpox, cholera, the common cold, diphtheria, influenza, malaria, measles, scarlet fever, a variety of sexually transmitted diseases, Ugh. typhoid, typhus, tuberculosis, and pertussis. Why are we so, so disease-ridden? Uh, we hang out with cows, <laughs> I think is the... S <laughs> 
the short answer. We just hang out with too many livestock. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, okay. So... In, 19, in 1892, Susan became very sick and bedridden for weeks. I'm not sure with what disease. Could have been any of these ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, could have been something else. But she took time off to restore her health and um, resigned from her position in, 1980, in 1893. Oh, I was about to go. To help Wait. Care. <laughs> <laughs> Do it every time. Uh-huh. Uh, to help care for her dying mother. Oh, okay. After her mother died and she was uh, well and she started... Um, you know, practicing medicine again. Yeah. She fell off her horse, <gasps> um, which left her with significant internal injuries. Oh, oh. And she continued throughout her life to suffer from chronic illness. Partially from this, maybe partially from other things as well. Oh, okay. Huh. But in 1894, oh. Dr. LaFleche met Henry Picot. A Sioux uh, Indian from Yankton. Sounds that name sounds the, familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the two fell in love and married in June 1894. Cute. A quick turnaround. Very quick. I was gonna say, wait, same year. <laughs> but when you know, you know. Or I don't know, times were weird back then too. Yeah. It's all good. So they had two sons. Uh, Carol was born in 1895, and uh, Pierre was born in 1898. Uh, but breaking with tradition from Victorian-era women, Dr. LaFleche was supported by her husband and continued to practice medicine after her children were born. So she you know, went back on the road, uh, continued her practice. And at this point, she opened a private practice in Bancroft and treated both white and Omaha patients in the surrounding communities. Uh, And she would still do house visits when necessary. Wow. That's great. So she... Yeah. So what what was her husband's job? Or did he have a job? Or do Um, odd jobs? The only thing I I know about him is that he was an alcoholic. Oh, great. <laughs> so, yeah. So I I wish I knew more if he had a job uh-huh. um, and what, what he did, but that's the only thing that really comes up, mostly as a reference to why she was very um, against alcohol oh, consumption. Oh, okay. Okay. Which we will get to in a second. Yeah. So um, Dr. Bracott not only treated medical problems, but also sought to educate her community about public health issues and preventative medicine. Mm. She campaigned against alcohol and supported temperance. Oh, okay. Uh, And this was was personal for her, as her husband, Henry, was an alcoholic. Ah, I see. There it is. Uh, Yeah. Yep. And she knew that white people used alcohol to take advantage of her people while making land deals. Uh, essentially stealing land from the Omaha. Uh, white people being so, the worst yet again. Yep. <laughs> uh, and some of her her methods for fighting alcohol consumption would probably not be looked favorably now. Oh, okay. Um, so she supported measures such as coercion and uh, corporal punishment <gasps> to dissuade members of the Omaha from consuming alcohol. Oh. In fact... Under her father's leadership, he installed a secret police that used corporal punishment on those who consumed alcohol. Oh. I could not find much more information on this, so also take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. But I think, um, you know, we now realize that alcoholism is a disease that needed to be treated, not something that should be punished. Yeah, I think. I don't. You know, I mean, that's like they used to just put leeches on people like, you know, they just didn't know. Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah. So what it was or how to treat it or. (laughs) Is that a a good way to solve it? No. No. But uh, I, you know, the larger context of what other people were doing, I'm not sure. You know, I can judge her terribly harshly for that. Um, In addition to alcohol, Dr. Picot also worked on public health issues for the whole community, including school hygiene, food sanitation, and the spread of communicable diseases. Uh, She held a variety of positions, 
such as on the health board of Walt Hill and was the chair of the state health committee uh, of the Nebraska Federation of Women's Clubs. Oh, cool. Yeah. So she had a variety yeah. of different positions. Um, and since medical school uh, and since medical school, like from the time that she was in medical school, she had campaigned for the building of a hospital on the reservation. Right. But found it very difficult to raise those funds. Her most fervent crusade was against tuberculosis, which was ravaging the reservation and was what killed her husband, Henry, in 1905, probably in combination with his alcoholism. Oh, okay. So she tried to get funding from the Indian office, but they refused, citing that they didn't have any money. Um, And at this time, there was no cure for tuberculosis, and it wasn't really clear what the cause was. So, you know, she advocated for cleanliness, fresh air, and housefly eradication. Whether or not those helped terribly much with TB, I don't know, but those are, you know, generally good things. Yeah, I don't think houseflies spread TB, but I think cleanliness, overall cleanliness was probably helpful. Yeah. So after her husband Henry's death, he death he left 185 acres of land in South Dakota to Susan and her, their sons. Whoa! However, at this time, uh, the land was held in trust by the government, Ugh. and in order to gain access to to land or the money from like, sometimes I think they would just sell it, your land, but then you are owed money. But in order to get that money, um. Susan, you had to provide that you were competent. What? But it's yours. You know, like, that doesn't make any... That's so messed up. Yes. So Susan had to convince the government that she was competent, which should be self-evident as she is a friggin' doctor. Uh Um, But it still took her two years of arduous work and sending letter after letter to the Indian office to be able to receive her inheritance. (sighs) I, I, you know, I have nothing to say. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) So, uh, yeah, this is another, you know, another reason why people had to work within the confines because everything was controlled by the government. Yeah. There's really, there wasn't a lot of freedom of choice. There's just a lot of coercion. Right. And if you want, like, just to meet your basic needs or get what you've earned, you had to, like, go through all these hoops and... Yep. Yeah. Yep. And they could probably say that you weren't competent for any reason that they didn't like. Yeah. You know? So, gaining her children's inheritance was an even harder struggle. Oh, my um, Because some of the land that was her son's inheritance, was in another state. Uh, a relative, Peter Picot, was legal guardian of the land, and he refused to cons- consent to the sale of this land. Oh. And so Susan sent many letters to the head of the Indian office, painting Peter Picot as a drunk and herself as a the best manager of her son's money. And the Indian office quickly responded and granted her access to... Uh, the land and to the money. Mm-hmm. And so Susan invested money in rental properties to support her and her sons with that money. Okay. I mean, and I'm like, I guess it's good for her and her sons feel kind of bad yeah. for her brother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know too many of the details about yeah. this. So, so, Bacot continued to struggle with the bureaucracy of land allotment on behalf of members of her community. Uh, Not only was she the doctor, interpreter, and letter writer for her community, but she was also the defender of Omaha land interests. Uh, From this work, she became aware of the land fraud committed by a group of men around and on the Omaha reservation. A group com- uh, composed of three white men and two Omaha men were defrauding miners of their inheritances. Um, and so Picot wrote to the, yeah, I know. So Picot wrote to the Indian office in 1909 and traveled to Washington, D.C. in 1910 to speak with the Office of Indian Affairs. She argued that the Indian office had stifled the development of business skills and knowledge of the white world, um, 
among Indians, causing some of her community to be incompetent to protect themselves against fraudsters. She argued that this incompetence in some of her people was the fault of the federal government and that these individuals needed the continued guardianship of their land by the federal government. On the other hand, she argued that the majority of her tribe should be given immediate access to their land deeds to do with them as they pleased, rather than having to go through the Bureau of Indian Affairs in order to get what is due them. I see. Yeah. So essentially, um, all of this unnecessary red tape was acting as this extra burden on the Omaha people, causing them to be treated as pretty much children by the U.S. government, rather than citizens ready to participate in democracy. And because of this, because they were, like, babied and weren't allowed to actually um, have their land and do what they wanted with it they had to you know apply to get access to what was due them all the time some members of the community just didn't like had a hard time once they actually got either like had a hard time getting access to their land or once they did they had a hard time knowing how to like keep it and not get it smuggled away from them it's it's just like they're not giving you resources to to like not improve but like, no one's giving you a resource to become, like, what's the word? Like, they're not given anything to succeed, and then the government punishes them for not succeeding, right? Yeah. Like, it's... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's all about control. Like, right. yes, you can have your land, but you have to jump through all of these various hoops and you have to prove to us all of these various things that we think you're competent and we think that you're, like, intelligent enough to manage your affairs versus letting them dictate their own lives. Yeah, but also there's no way to meet those expectations. Like, the path to meeting those expectations is so slim like no one almost no one can get across it you know yeah yeah no it's all it's all about like suppression (laughs) and keeping people like you want to have them um free quote unquote if they are doing everything that you like yeah yeah anyways so Um, And so despite working on these communities' behalf uh, for the rest of her life, her people lost many of their ancestral lands and became more dependent on the Office of Indian Affairs as Mm. time went on. In good news, in 1913, (laughs) she finally raised enough money from private donors, including herself and and money that was left to her by Henry and from the, the land that she received, to complete a hospital in Walthill, Oh, yes. Finally. Nice. Uh, and it was the first privately funded hospital on a reservation, and it was named in her honor. Wow. Wow. However, <gasps> by this time, her health had, de- had declined quite severely, and she was deaf and too frail to be the sole administrator or to actually, like, be a doctor at this hospital. Uh. Okay. And she died two years later on September 18th, 1915, from bone cancer at the age of 50. What? Oh. Yeah. I didn't... So, yeah. three... That's... Three Presbyterian ministers officiated her funeral, and the closing prayer was given in the Omaha language by an elder of the tribe. Oh. She was buried in the Bancroft Cemetery in Nebraska near the rest of her family. I'm just so glad she had her her dream or her goal realized before this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so- <laughs> I didn't even realize how young she was. Because, like, even though you told me the year she was born, I was like, yeah. ah, and she was 80, right? Because she just lived a whole <laughs> life. <laughs> she, yeah, she lived a whole life, a very hard life. Yeah. So, in kind of summary, in her career, Susan LaFleche Picot served over 1,300 patients in a 450 square mile area. Oh. Unfortunately, the hospital she worked so hard to fund was closed in 1945. 
Okay, but even and still, that was quite a while it was open. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in 1989, the Susan LaFleche Picot Center, uh, which is where the hospital was, right. opened as a heritage site, and the local community has been working to try to find resources to restore it. Oh, cool. Some people may believe that Susan compromised her Omaha identity through her Christian religious mission and promotion of modern over traditional medicine. Um, but Dr. Susan LaFleche Picot worked tirelessly to protect the Omaha and their culture, believing that they had to adapt and assimilate in order to survive the overbearing rules of white society. Yeah. So she worked within those confines to try to protect um, and keep her, her people healthy. Yeah. While breaking a bunch of barriers as she did so. Right. So. That is a story of Dr. Susan LaFleche Picot. And I I think it's it's good too that you know she she used she did that and then went back to serve her community, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, they 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 mark that like yeah, she was in the East Coast. She got trained in the East Coast. She easily could have stayed in the East Coast and had a much easier life trying to set up a practice somewhere there. Mm-hmm. But she came back and tried to actually really serve her her community. Yeah. Well, that's really great. I never – it's been on the – like I said before, it's been on the docket for a while. And uh, I'm really glad to have heard her story at last. There's lot lots more that you could you could read, and I I will link to the audiobook because it was very interesting. Yeah. Um. And yeah, it's just a it's a crazy life she led. Yeah, definitely. Only fifty years old. I like I was certain I she was ninety when she died. <laughs> <laughs> no, she just she, she just packed it all yeah, in there. It all. Yeah. Work, 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 work. Okay, Emily. Yes. I hope this is somewhat cohesive because I put it together quickly. We'll see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Try my best. This is our this is our Oh yeah, this is our Women Who Work section. Yeah, women who work. Uh giving shout outs to badass ladies making her street today. Okay, actually Ooh. my first shout out uh is to our new freaking vice president, Kamala Harris. <laughs> Maybe not a woman in science, but a woman in leadership and a first female vice president of the United States. We got to celebrate, you know? We got to celebrate. Also, uh, Dr. Jill Biden. We got a doctor in the house. I don't know know. what she, um, I don't know what her discipline is that she teaches. Um, But whatever it is, I'm freaking pumped to have an educator. I think she literally teaches education. Which is, like, her doctorate was in helping, like, community college students succeed in college. So I think she researched education, which is, like, oh, my God. It's the best. It's the best of the best. Anyway. Yeah. I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm excited that she's just going to be going to work. I know. And that a community college is just going to have the... uh, Madam, wait, would it? The first, first lady. lady. She's gonna have the first lady as their like teacher, and that's awesome. Yeah. So, I digress. Um. Okay. But today, <laughs> but my <laughs> so my other shout out is I wish I'd found something else because we got these two. Your story wasn't a downer, but there was a lot of moments that are like, oh, society's disappointing. And my shout out yes. is also society is disappointing. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. And I, you probably saw this online, but um, but recently a PhD candidate in ecology, Emily Kazan at the University of Florida, did a study on how students evaluate female versus male teaching assistants. Yes, I did see this. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. And she did this uh, crazy study. Not crazy, but like crazy cool, you know. Crazy cool study where 
She based, she was the teaching assistant for an online course where none of her students would actually interface with her uh, mm-hmm. uh, in video, like to see that they were talking to. They never saw their teaching assistant in like a live yeah. form, right? They yes. just interacted with their teaching assistant via text messaging or emails, things like that online in this course. Yeah. And for half of the students, she was, you know, her full self. Um, for the other half of the students, she pretended to be a male teaching assistant. Yep. Where they actually, like, in the course description displayed her picture for half the students and for the other half of students displayed the picture of a guy who was not their teacher assistant, yeah. but they said was. Mm-hmm. Yes. And in the student evaluations at the end of the semester, she found that overall her evaluations were good, which wouldn't it be embarrassing to do this and all of the students just say, <laughs> you're bad, you suck, and then that's your whole you're study. You're a very bad teacher. <laughs> um, most of the students said she was a good or, like, above-average teaching assistant, and it proved, you know, whatever. But when students uh, thought that, you know, she was female, which she is, um, her reviews were not as good. Mm -hmm. And what's particularly disappointing about the study is that female students rated her lower than male students. Yeah. Five times as many negative reviews. Oh. That is upsetting. Yeah. So. (laughs) We gotta gotta (laughs) pull each other up. I wish I'd found like two shout outs so I could have saved this one for (laughs) another time or something. I mean, we can end it with more about Kamala. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, anyway, I'm just trying to. I just am, you know, I'm bringing this up because uh, her results were not statistically significant, uh, somewhat due to sample size and just that most of her reviews were positive. So for the Mm -hmm. male TA, 98.4% were positive. And for the female TA, 90.9% were positive. So it's really kind of interesting that um, there were just these, you know, few negative reviews, but only for the female teaching assistant, which despite that not being statistically significant, those reviews can really change somebody's life. Like one negative review, two, three, four, five can change somebody's life. So you, mm-hmm. uh, what I liked about this study is that they pointed out the negative ramifications of even, you know, just like how how women often feel like imposters already in their field, and how yeah. if you're receiving even ten percent more negative reviews than a man for doing the same job as well, that can impact yeah. your feelings of of belongingness and acceptance in the community. So mm-hmm. I just, let's, let's support other women. Let's end teaching evaluations where people are rated on scales that aren't effective, or let's improve teaching evaluations somehow. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's very interesting. And I, Encourage everyone to look into biases in teaching evaluations because it's not just at the professor level. It's in these even more early career positions that we don't always consider thinking about retention. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And you think about, you know, there might be not a statistically significant difference within this one class for this one semester. But in addition to, you know, even small, small differences – uh, making a big difference in how you feel about, you know, your qualifications. Right. You all, if you also, you know, how long are you a teaching assistant and then how yeah. long are you a professor? Like, if every semester 
for every class, you get, you know, half a handful more negative reviews just because you're a woman. Yes. That does add up. Yeah, exactly. So. Yep. That is, I'm, (laughs) that is interesting. It's definitely one of those things that, um, it's good to know as I've started to write letters of recommendation for people. Oh, yeah. I have definitely tried to keep that in mind when I'm writing and what I'm you adjectives I'm using and like thinking whether or not I would feel the same way if this person was, you know, different in this way or that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Just good, you know, to keep in the back of your mind. Yeah, I just uh, people need to be aware of their own biases and mm-hmm. we have biases. Like women have biases against other women. And we need to just know that because that knowing that helps us reduce the impact of those biases and hopefully change them over time. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think these are not like, I mean, all biases or most biases, they're not inherent. It's based on, you know, the culture that we have absorbed through being alive. And like so much of media has like catfights and people like, you know, lots of movies, you know, women are pulling each other down and there can't be just two friends they have to end up being enemies and all this like bs yeah but that's for a different yeah podcast but for now we got this new awesome vp (laughs) trying to bring it back a female vp we got an educator first lady and i am friggin pumped Uh, uh, uh. (sighs) yeah uh 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 all right. Well, I hope that everybody had some fun uh, <laughs> and is going to channel whatever anger you've developed from this episode to do something good. <laughs> Don't let it stew. Use it yeah. to fuel something. I'm actually going to uh, maybe go take and eat some meatloaf and then go to bed. But tomorrow I <laughs> rage hard in a positive manner. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Store, you can store it up and use it when, you, when you've when you got yeah, to. Yeah. Eat the meatloaf now. Rage later. Yeah. All right. And on the, that note, in addition to raging later, you can also go... Stimulate, stimulate yourself. Yourself. Bye.